Good morning. Please take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 16 and 1 Corinthians 11, which is where I want to begin. We are celebrating the Lord's Supper today, and our text is Romans 16, but I want to frame it with 1 Corinthians 11 and our anticipation now of the Lord's Supper and our celebration of the Lord's Supper in a few moments. And so 1 Corinthians 11, I just want to draw your attention to a few verses, and then we will come back to it later. Chapter 11, verse 17, beginning to read. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So this is Paul speaking to the church in the city of Corinth. Uh, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now that is a fascinating passage of Scripture. And it's not where I want to camp out this morning, other than to say Paul is calling the church at Corinth to a little hearty self-examination to make sure they understand what they are doing when they gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the need to make sure they are coming in the right frame of mind with the right frame of heart. What I do want to draw your attention to are just a couple of little phrases. Verse 17 Middle of the verse, when you come together, did you see it? I want you to notice that phrase. Into verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I want you to notice in verse 20, when you come together, and then verse 22, middle of the verse, or do you despise The church of God. And so Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. And Paul recognizes that this church is defined uh, by whom? Or rather, when? Well, the answer is very straightforward. He uses the phrase here. He uses it in several other occasions in this epistle. He is referring to those who come together. It is a recognized identifiable gathering of believers, Christians, in the city of Corinth who are in the habit, the custom of gathering together. And gathering together, that is identifying themselves openly, I dare say formally, with other Christians and doing so in this context for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, That is what we are doing this morning. Let me check that. That is what most of us are doing this morning. Uh, We identify ourselves, most of us, with Grace Community Church. We are members of this church. Some of you are members at other churches. That's fine. You are welcome, most welcome here. And we are gathering now, and we gather with this purpose 
of celebrating the Lord's Supper in, yes, commemoration of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and also in our long-awaited awaited and anticipated, his long-awaited and anticipated return. But what I want to emphasize again is that phrase, we come together as a church. And as we anticipate celebrating the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read the rest of the verses, or a few more verses in that chapter when the time comes. I want us to go now to Romans 16. And I want us to fill in this gap, this idea of this church coming together an identifiable, clearly marked people of God. And with that in our minds... I want us to turn to Romans 16 and consider a few marks, a few characteristics of these people, of such a church. And so follow along now as I begin reading in verse 1 again of Romans 16, and I'm going to read as far as the 16th verse. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, <coughs> excuse me, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Great Prissa, we also know her as Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, if those verses weren't among your favorite before today, well, they're right up there with Psalm 23 now, aren't they? Uh, no, not the most riveting, not the most compelling, stirring passage of Scripture. But we affirm in the language of Paul's great statement to his colleague Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed. And because all Scripture is God-breathed, it is profitable. And it is profitable for reproving, it is profitable for rebuking, correcting, training, so forth and so on. And so we affirm that this text, as the God-breathed Word of God, 
is profitable for us. How? How, how could this, <coughs> how can this list of greetings to a bunch of people we don't know be in any way profitable for us here in the 21st century in Glen Rose, Texas. I want to suggest to you that what we have in these verses is a small window. And we can look through this window and see back 2,000 years. And when we do that, we see five things. I'm not reading into the text. They're there. We see five things clearly in these verses. And I want to go through these with you this morning, and I want us to bear in mind the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, when you gather together as the church of God. Five features of the church, a church, an early church in the city of Rome. I'm going to spend a little time on number one and number two. Number two is of most interest to me, and I believe should be of most interest to us. I think it is subtle, and yet, once we see it, it does leap off the page. And the numbers three, four, and five, I'm going to go through quickly, okay? So number one is this. We look through this window, and what do we see? I'm going to state the obvious. We see a church. We see a local church. It's fascinating. Paul names 26 people. He identifies 26 people by name. He mentions five households by name. Paul has never been to this church. Paul has never been in this city. Yet Paul, obviously, this is a fair, sound deduction. He knows who belongs to this church. What can we imply from that? We can imply, we can conclude the following, and the New Testament bears this out in its entirety, that there was some formal way of recognizing who belonged to this church. That in Paul's mind, there was no confusion as to who was in and who was out. No confusion as to who belonged and who didn't belong. This is something that is implied throughout the New Testament. I could go on and on about this. Don't worry, I won't. Let me just give you a couple of examples. It's implied firstly, throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's epistles, uh, where we read of Paul appointing elders and deacons, or conversely, Paul addressing elders and deacons. So for example, he writes to the Philippians, he writes to the church at Philippi, to the saints at Philippi, and the overseers, that is the elders and the deacons. I submit to you that those offices of elders and deacons are completely irrelevant and completely meaningless unless there was some way of identifying who actually belonged to the church of Philippi for whom those elders and deacons were responsible. I think that's a fair inference. I think that's simply logic in action. That the offices of elders and deacons become meaningless if there is no way of formally identifying who actually belongs to the church And who's actually responsible for these people? I mean, Peter's going to say in one of his epistles, he's going to exhort elders, shepherd the flock of God among you. How do they know who the flock of God is if the flock of God isn't some way easily identifiable? 
If there wasn't some way of formally recognizing, well, yes, you are a Christian and you are part of this church. Well, how do I know I'm responsible to shepherd you? You see where I'm going with this? So let's bring it home. <coughs> here we are, Grace Community Church. You got Randy sitting right here, caught my eye, Brian right here, myself. We're elders. How do we know? We got Ike out there somewhere in Cody. How do we know if we're responsible for you or not as elders? Says who? Just because you attend here once in a while or even attend frequently? How do we know we are to shepherd you as part of this flock without formally recognizing in some way that you actually belong to us? How do we know if we're responsible for you or not? Here's a scary thought. How do I know I'm going to stand before the Lord Jesus someday and give an account for you? Unless you've actually identified with us. Unless there is some official way of recognizing uh, who is in or who is out. I think that just makes good common sense, doesn't it? You think, for example, another way. I mean, this, this is just implied throughout the New Testament. Uh, you think, for example, secondly, of how, of how the Lord Jesus speaks of church discipline. First in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. He gives the power of the keys to the church. And you think of some of Paul's admonitions in his first epistle as the second epistles to that church at Corinth. Boy, he's pretty direct, isn't he? I want you to throw out, he basically says, purge yourselves of those individuals who are among you who continue in flagrant sin. Well, that raises a dilemma. How do they do that unless they actually know who is among them? How do you exercise church discipline in a context where you don't even know who the members are? How do you fulfill, exercise the power of the keys if it's unclear as to who is actually part of the local church or who isn't? You see, this is just implied. It is just assumed throughout the New Testament that a local church will be identifiable. There will be some way of formally recognizing who is in, who is out. And so if you were here last Sunday, it was wonderful, wasn't it, the baptisms? It was equally wonderful because we received into what? Membership here, certain individuals. So that's the way we do it at Grace Community Church. We go through a little course, little interview, little forms you fill out, and then an announcement. That way we know who is part of the church. Uh, we now know as church members, hey, I'm responsible for that person. I'm responsible for her. I'm responsible for him. We now know as elders who we're responsible to watch. Uh, who has been charged to our care? These are truths. This is a truth. This is a principle which is simply implied throughout the book of Acts and certainly simply assumed in Paul's epistles. It's a church. Paul knows who's in the church at Rome. That's the first thing we see. Second thing we see is this. And, and this is what is most compelling to me, most stirring and most encouraging. As we look through this window at these verses... We don't merely see a church, uh, we see a diverse church. I love it. We see a very diverse church. Again, he mentions 26 individuals. I want to notice a few things that perhaps escaped our notice. These 26 individuals differ, extremely differ in terms of their race. There are Jews in here, and there are a whole lot of Gentiles. The greatest division that has ever plagued humanity, we find them both in this church. 
These individuals differ in their gender. He mentions a number of men. If I've, my arithmetic is correct, and if I've got all the masculine, feminine of some of those words figured out, there are at least eight women mentioned among those 26. So they differ in terms of their race. They differ in terms of their gender. They differ in terms of their class, social class. We have servants listed in here. Obviously, we have masters, heads of households. That literally means heads of estates. So we have the entire social spectrum represented in this church. And they differ in terms of culture. Paul refers to one of those individuals. I won't try to pronounce it again. It's a tricky one, verse 5. But Paul says he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. But he's writing to a church where? Modern-day Italy. You have the great divide between the Latin culture and the Greek culture. You have the great divide between the European, what will become the European, and the Asian culture. So you have these, these, these distinguishing marks of this plethora of people, only 26 represented here. We don't know how many hundreds actually constitute this church, but 26 whom Paul mentions, and it gives us this striking characteristic of this church, its diversity, its diversity. Oh, I find that so compelling. I find that extremely compelling in our day especially as I pay attention to the news cycle and pay attention to it over the past year. Oh, there's so many roads we could go down right now, but you think just of the past year or two and the racial tension, which has always been there, and I suppose will be there until Christ returns, but the racial tension that has reemerged in this country. When I read a text like this and I see the diversity and the power of the gospel transcending the great divide between Jews and Gentiles, the Latin culture, the Greek culture, Europe and Asia, male and female. And I see the social classes of the master and the servant. And I see all of these people, diverse people, congregated together, constituting the church at Rome. I am reminded of one simple, glorious truth. It is this. The gospel is the only solution for race tension. The gospel is the only remedy for those distinctions, those things that divide, that separate, that it is in the church alone that we find a greater identity that puts all of that diversity in the back seat where it belongs. And our identity is this, we are in Christ. Someone has commented on this church at Rome as follows. Oh, local churches, early local churches were the one place in the Roman Empire where differing races actually got along. Their racial harmony gave them a chance to explain that Jesus is the Lord of all humanity, the Savior of all races. I find that so compelling. And I will confess to you, I find that so challenging. As I have worked through this myself over the years, and even again in recent weeks and months, I find myself gravitating to five or six principles that uh, I, I make them my prayer to govern my, my thinking by, and I want to share them uh, with you. 
And I pray the Spirit of God will, will impress upon us how this applies to us a, as a church. Five or six principles. I'll keep my eye on the watch, see how the time goes. The first principle is this. <coughs> Diversity and unity. Principle number one. I embrace, as a Christian, God's plan. I embrace God's plan. Here is God's plan in a nutshell. Malachi 1.11. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. That is God's plan. Let me reword it for you to make sure we're not missing its full impact. Here it is. Cultural diversity is a wonderful thing in the eyes of God. Cultural diversity is a wonderful thing in the eyes of God. Let me reword that to make sure we're really getting it. If I don't like cultural diversity, I'm probably not going to like heaven. Now I think we're getting to the crux of the matter. If I don't love cultural diversity, I'm going to feel really uncomfortable in God's presence. His name will be great among the nations. I embrace his plan. Second principle is this, I celebrate what God is doing insofar as that plan is concerned. In the year 1900, only one or two of you remember, you shall remain nameless. 1900, 70% of all Christians were Europeans. So what's that, 116 years ago. 70% of all Christians were Europeans. 100 years later, the year 2000, only 28% of all Christians were Europe Europeans. What has happened? There has been a huge shift. Where? To Latin America, Southeast Asia, and Africa. We see what God is doing. We see the fulfillment of Christ's own prophecy. Mark records it for us. It's tremendous. It is this. My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. What is the house? It's the church, the temple of the living God. It will be a house of prayer for all nations. Here's a remarkable statistic. I only discovered it this past week. <clears throat> apparently, from those who know, keep track of these things. Within 15 years, China will have more Christians than any other country in the world. I celebrate what God is doing. I celebrate how he is fulfilling, realizing, bringing to fruition his plan. I celebrate that the temple of the living God, the church, the body of Christ consists of of the nations. The third principle is this. I recognize that God is giving me an opportunity to be a part of this. I recognize that God is giving me an opportunity to be a part of this. How? How? In 2008, 66% of the population of the United States was Caucasian. By 2050, only 46% of the population will be Caucasian. There are two possible responses. I suggest to you the second is the Christian response. 
Response number one, this is bad, we're losing our country. Response number two, this is good, God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. And I want to be a part of it. I want to be used of the Lord in the salvation of the nations. That the temple of the Lord, a temple of prayer, prayer constituting all the nations. Fourth principle is this. It's more of a confession. I confess that I have weaknesses in this area. I have. I stand before you and I confess that I have some great weaknesses in this area. Uh, Reasons why? Oh, I don't know. We could go on and on and on. I can give you a list as long as my arm. But, um, you know, a, a little bit. I blame it on flannel graph. All right, I lost the under 35 crowd. <coughs> the rest of you are with me, right? Flannel graph? Some of you kids are looking to their moms and dads. What's he? I know, you lost me right there. Right, that felt thing on a board and all the little pictures cut out for the Bible stories and you put them on the flannel. Well, because of flannel graph, I thought Jesus was a white guy with girly hair wearing a blue sash till I was a teenager. I did. And I remember a friend of me, of mine having this discussion, and he said, you're in, I won't repeat what he called me. But you really think that? Of course he wasn't. But that was just kind of what I was raised in. And you just sort of arrive at certain assumptions and, and picture certain things. It was a nice blue sash with the right robe. You know the one. You've seen it. Don't judge me. You've seen it. And some of you were right there with me. And, um, you know, I, I was raised, I, I'm not from around these here parts. I was raised suburb of Toronto, a very uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant community. Were we diverse? The diversity was simply this. Were you old British or new British? That was the diversity. When did you immigrate? Well, you know, can you trace it back a few generations? Or did you just come over like I did with my parents in the 60s? That was the diversity. A few friends, neighborhood friends growing up that were of different ethnicities, never gave it a thought. Off to college. Well, that was it. Into the city. And, uh, oh, the nations from the Caribbean, Jamaica especially. It was just before 1990. Remember Hong Kong reverted back to, to China and uh, mass immigration of Hong Kong Chinese to Toronto. Lots of my friends, Chinese. All this ethnic, cultural diversity. And you know, I still never really thought anything of it. And then Alice and I off as missionaries. We were a year in Angola, in Africa. Something changed at that moment. You know what it was? We became the minority. That was interesting. It was really, really interesting. And then five years in Portugal. And in Portugal, you think Europe, but Portugal is Portugal. Very distinct, very different. And uh, again, we were the minority. And uh, a little bit of self-realization went on there. And I, I realized two things about myself, and these are weaknesses I have in this area. Um, weakness number one is this. I love myself too much. And because I love myself, I am naturally drawn to those who are most like me. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm assuming one or two of you can empathize with that. Because I love myself, I am most naturally drawn to those who are most like me. Culturally, ethnically, everything else. 
Second realization I arrived at was this. I assume far too much. What I think I know about other cultures far exceeds what I actually know. And I came to this realization because, you see, I was at the opposite end of the spectrum as a minority. And the assumptions people would make about me, well, you're from North America, therefore you must be like this. You must think this way. You must do this. You must act like this. And I'm standing there thinking, where's this coming from? That's not me at all. And it came to this self-realization in a period of examination, recognizing these two things. Because I love myself, I'm naturally drawn to those who are most like me. And I think, I assume far too much what I think I know about other cultures far exceeds what I actually know, most of it based on second-hand information, third-hand information, fourth-hand information, or worst of all, the media. And I arrive at conclusions based on Fox News and think I know, when in actual fact, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Uh, those were realizations I had to come to, terms I had to deal with. And I still confess I have weaknesses in this area. Fifth principle is this. I lift up the gospel as the only answer to this. I lift up the gospel. Look at verse 2 in Romans 16. That you may welcome Phoebe, phrase I want you to get, in the Lord. Verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers, in Christ Jesus. All the way down to verse 7, near the end of the verse, they were in Christ before me. Into verse 8, greet Ampliatus, my beloved, in the Lord. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker, in Christ. Verse 10, greet Apelles, who was approved, in Christ. Verse 11, greet those in the Lord. Verse 12, greet those workers in the Lord. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Again and again and again. What is Paul saying? Your identity is no longer Jew or Gentile. Your identity is no longer European or Asian. Your chief identity is no longer Latin or Greek. Your chief identity is no longer servant or master. I don't care what end of the social spectrum you're at. Here is now your chief identity. This is what defines you. This is what shapes you. Everything else, again, takes a backseat, relegated to secondary importance, if even that. You are in Christ. You see, it is the gospel that humbles us. It's the gospel that just rips everything from us. Everything we think sets us apart and separates us from others. The gospel says, no, 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 I'll have none of it. Here we are, this mass of humanity, rebels against the living God, and the gospel, the power of the gospel in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is this. He lifts us up from the muck and the mire, and our identity, whatever we think we are, is now shaped by this one overarching and, dare I say, wonderfully compelling truth. I am one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So tomorrow, oh, i got to watch the clock. Tomorrow, Allison and I are, are traveling down to San Antonio. 
Do you know why we're traveling down to San Antonio? We're becoming American citizens. There you go. I'll be walking. I'll be. <coughs> I'll be walking a little taller next Sunday. Just you wait. We're going to become American citizens. We're residents of this great state, Texas. I am still. It will never change. Of. British heritage, both Scotch and English. I love certain sports. I love certain food. I love listening to certain music. There are certain cultural norms I hold dear. But guess what? They're all irrelevant to my true identity, which is what? I am in Christ. Hear me out. If I equate any of those things I just mentioned with what it means to be a Christian, I am in opposition to the gospel. As a matter of fact, it's worse. I have become an obstacle to the proclamation of the gospel. Our identity is in Christ, one with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. Sixth principle is this. I strive, and I know we do. We strive for diversity here at Grace Community Church, and I am thankful for it. I'm thankful for the diversity. I'm thankful for the cultural diversity, Hispanic, Anglo. I'm thankful for the intellectual diversity right across the board, the spectrum, the financial diversity, vocational diversity, social diversity, physical diversity, familial diversity, on and on and on and on and on it goes. But you know what my prayer is? My prayer is 10 years from now, should the Lord tarry, love that phrase, should the Lord tarry, 10 years from now, we'll be even more diverse. We'll look even more different than we do now. That we will reflect this great principle that in Christ, everything just kind of becomes irrelevant. And because of our union in Christ, we are united one to another. That is the power of the gospel. And that is the greatest witness we could bear to our society in our day. Because it's inexplicable how such diverse people can actually get along. How such diverse people can actually lay aside their differences, think of others ahead of themselves, and be so enthralled with the Lord Jesus that all of these things become of secondary place and importance. That was the second thing we see in these verses. Three, four, and five. I'm going to go real quick because the Lord's Supper is there waiting on us before us. Here's number three, just quickly. Uh, we look at these verses through this window back 2,000 years. We see a loving church. We see a loving church. Okay? Let me draw your attention to it. <coughs> look at verse five. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved. There it is. Epineatus. I'm not quite sure how to say that one. My beloved. Epineatus. Go down to verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved. Verse 9 at the end, my beloved Stachus. In the middle of verse 12, greet the beloved Persis. Beloved, 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 beloved. It's reminiscent of Paul's admonition back in chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. This is the love of a family that only comes with familiarity. It's the love of a family that only comes with familiarity, despite differences, disagreements, and disappointments. 
This love means there is devotion to one another. We see a loving church, all right? Number four, we see a giving church. Many ways. Let me draw your attention just to one thing. Verse three, greet Prissa and Aquila. Yes, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. It's the next phrase that is quite riveting. Who risked their necks for my life. How? Clueless. Absolutely no idea. But here we have these believers, these Christians, who were willing to lay it all on the line for the good of the Apostle Paul. And we now see this same attitude taking shape, taking form in the context of the church at Rome. It reminds me, it's reminiscent of Paul's admonition again back in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. So this giving of ourselves Showing honor to others. We are to treat others as valuable. We're to give our attention to how we can help others rather than be helped by them. And here's the fifth and final thing I see concerning this church. It's a serving church. Quickly, third verse. Again, greet Prisa and Aquila, my fellow workers. Down in verse 6. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse 9, greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Verse 12, one more example, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. It sends me back again to Romans chapter 12, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. To be fervent in spirit is to boil over. That's what we see here in the church at Rome. We see a group of believers compelled by such love for one another that they give themselves for the good of others in serving one another for their edification. There you have it. Five snapshots of the early church at Rome. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he was approached by a man, nameless, uh, back, obviously, 1800s. And this man came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and wanted to know a little bit about uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, where, where Spurgeon was the pastor. And uh, actually said to Spurgeon, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, for a perfect church. I'm looking for uh, this, 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 this. It's got to be out there, Metropolitan Tabernacle. Would you describe it as a church that has arrived? Would you describe it as a perfect church? Spurgeon, without hesitation, stated the following, my church is not the one you're looking for. He openly acknowledged it. Uh, My church is not the one you're looking for. But if you should happen to find such a church, I beg you not to join it, for you would spoil the whole thing. (laughs) How true is that? There is no such thing as a perfect church. But check that. There is such a thing as a God-glorifying church. What does it look like? It's a church. Members, identifiable, uniting themselves with other believers. Oh, it's a diverse church. It's a loving church. It's a serving church. It's a giving church. It drives me all the way back to chapter 1 where Paul says the following concerning the church at Rome. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. 
because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. How was this church's faith proclaimed in all the world? I put it to you. It was a church. It was a diverse church. It was a loving church. It was a giving church. It was a serving church. Oh, that is my prayer. For us here at Grace Community Church, Jonathan Lehman writes, King Jesus. Oh, King Jesus calls churches to put his merciful and obedient love on display for the world. When we do, we cause the nations to give praise. Did you get all that? Now, where did we begin? Yes, quite right. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn back there with me now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. And look again at those phrases I first drew your attention to, beginning in verse 17. When you come together, verse 18, you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together, and the phrase again in verse 22, the church of God. And we have come together as a church. And we have come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And believe you me, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the body of Christ and we celebrate everything I have been saying this morning. That is our oneness in Christ. And so too we celebrate our union with him. Our union with him in his death, his burial, his resurrection. So wonderfully displayed in the emblems before us on the table. Let's pray as we prepare and ask the Lord's blessing on what is before us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word proclaimed and ask that you would implant it deep within us. And as we now see the gospel visibly portrayed before us, our minds are drawn back toward the cross. And we celebrate what transpired and what was accomplished there in Christ's crucifixion. Not only in his crucifixion, but in his subsequent death, and ultimately in his resurrection and his ascension. And there we see the one who loved us, giving himself up for us, and then raised for our justification. This is indeed our great hope. It is indeed the foundation of our faith. And so as we partake this morning, may you open our eyes to behold the Lord Jesus in all his glory. And may our hearts overflow with thanksgiving to you for him. In his precious name we ask it. Amen.